My name's Tavo Hellman, and I have the distinct pleasure of introducing the panelists today, but my friends at South by Southwest asked me to say a few words, kind of set the stage for Formula One, um, where, it's ha where it's come from, where it's going, the critical and exciting time it's in. So um, there's a little bit of background, and I'll try to be quick about it. Uh, I attended my first Grand Prix in 1968. I was two years old. Uh, my wife teases that I have been married to F1 for over 50 years and that she's merely my girlfriend. Um, that's true. I worked for Bernie Ecclestone in the early 80s uh, when he owned the Formula One team, the Brabham Formula One team, and then I worked for him in his office learning the business. I raced cars and I tried to make it to Formula One and I ran out of money and talent uh, kind of at the same time and I didn't make it that far. But, um, and then I, Bernie asked me to help him with Indianapolis race uh, when Formula One was going back to Indianapolis. And I told him there that I felt like that as much as I loved Indy, that the right place in the United States was in my hometown of Austin, which he laughed at at the time. But to make a really long story short, in 2007, my wife and I flew to the Belgian Grand Prix and we agreed to bring Formula One to Austin. I handed Bernie a napkin from the Salt Lick that had a design of a track that is now called Circuit of the Americas. Uh, so, and you'd be pleased to know that my not very fancy drawing is 90% accurate of what actually got built, which is pretty cool. Um, and then after the 2012, 2013 event here in Austin, I started the Mexican Grand Prix with two friends of mine. But, so it's a long story, naturally. If, for those of you that are familiar with Formula One and know Bernie's history of how he took the sport over in the late 70s and really made it more than just a bunch of weekend warriors, tried to make it a uniform series around the world where the teams all got paid a certain amount of money from the promoters and all the promoters paid the same amount of money. And he did this and for that, he got all the other team owners to agree to pay him a fee uh, a small fee. It ended up turning into a gigantic fee. Bernie became very wealthy, but he is the person who created the juggernaut. There was always some, um, a component missing of North America and it really hitting. Yes, uh, America enjoyed Watkins Glen, which was a great venue for Grand Prix, but over the, from the 20 years from late 90s until Indianapolis, it bounced around from Phoenix to Detroit. And I always said to Bernie, the, the, the issue you've got to remember about Americans and North America is that you need to humanize the sport. You know, he, he made the choice to go to the desert and to go east to create the value of going to sovereign wealth nations. And he did a better job than anyone else could have. But at a certain point, you have to humanize it. And I always said, you need to have some sort of television show. You need to have a venue or two that really lets Americans understand the sport. And my wife always drilled that to me. And she said, "Is if Americans can see behind the curtain, they'll fall in love with this sport. So today, the nice thing about the two panelists that you're gonna speak with is there aren't two people that are more well-equipped to discuss this. And, and I'll give you a little bit of background before I uh, ask them to come on stage. But Lee Diffie, as many of you know, is probably the most recognized 
voice right now in motor racing around the world. I call him the, you know, the Murray Walker of our generation. He's got an Australian accent. Uh, as many of you may remember, he was the voice of Formula One in the United States while NBC had the rights to that. And now he is the voice of the Indianapolis 500, voice of IndyCar, and more even though he's very humble and, and doesn't like to brag, you might have all seen him take a, a senior role in the Olympics for NBC now that Bob Costas is in there. So super accomplished. Nobody in American journalism knows as much about Formula One as Lee does. He's very well, you know, He's got great relationships in the paddock, and he has a ton of knowledge. And uh, he's been a friend of mine for 20 years. The lady that you're about to meet, that if you're not familiar with her, Chloe Target Adams, has also been a multiple decades long friend of mine. And she is the absolute best person that you could have a conversation with about the evolution and expansion of Formula One in the last 50 years. She's got an incredibly interesting in, uh, background, which she will never brag about, so I'm gonna tell you right now so that you guys can ask her about it. So she's one of the few transfer or holdovers uh, is what I call, she was with Bernie's regime, she was one of his lawyers, she did all the big deals uh, 20, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and she's one of the few that has transitioned over with Liberty, and her, her title is Director of Global uh, Motors, uh, Race Promotions. And so she's the one that really leads the charge of what venues, what markets, uh, where to go, how to do it in a sustainable way, and how to give the, the, the venues and the communities really a foothold other than saying that they have a fat, fancy event. Um, she's a lawyer by trade. Uh, she has a really unique, and for South by Southwest, this is a great antidote that a lot of people don't know, even if you look her up on Wikipedia. Um, so she comes from a legendary rock and roll family. Uh, she grew up, her dad was just inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a couple of years ago. He's one of the founding members of Roxy Music. So Chloe, you know, grew up touring, seeing global events, seeing things on large scale. I've had the pleasure of working with her on deals to where I've seen her interact with the cleaning people and heads of state. She treats everyone equally. She is truly a world-class executive and one of, I think, one of the three or four best female sports executives in the world. Um, I think we'll all be seeing her on magazines for a long time to come. And I think that she gets it. She understands what is needed and how to be a good partner. And so when we ticked the US Grand Prix being established in Austin off the box, we started the Mexican Grand Prix again. She was pivotal and she's the reason that Miami is successful and now that Vegas is gonna be launched in November. So I know they're excited to talk to you, but I wanted to kind of set the stage so that you could ask questions for them. Uh, so let me introduce Lee Diffie from NBC Sports and also Chloe Target Adams from Formula One, two of my dear friends, and I think you guys will enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks, Tavo. Thanks, Tavo. Good afternoon, folks. How are you all? Hey. N now you can see how Tavo convinced Bernie Eccleston to bring F1 to Austin, right? <laughs> Thanks, Tavo. That was uh, that was somewhat overly generous, but 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 much appreciated. Um, 
let's have a fun afternoon. Let's have a fun session talking about the global phenomenon that is Formula One. And, you know, uh, many of you, like us, diehard Formula One fans, we know that it's not the beginning. The World Championship has been around since 1950, but these past few years it has gone to heights that none of us could have ever imagined. And Chloe's going to help kind of unpack the reasons as to why. And, and like Tavo touched on, where the sport has come from, where it is right now, and thanks to people like Chloe, where the sport is going and that sport that we love. A uh, little bit of housekeeping, and a lot of you have participated already. We're going to have a Q&A at the end of this, so we really encourage you to, to um, post your questions. It's on the app. Um, or you can boost questions that have already been posted. And we're going to bring Tavo back at the end as well to answer any um, Austin-specific questions that you may have. But as, as Tavo so generously introduced us, and he touched on the fact that you've been with Formula One for, for a long time, 14 years, so almost a decade and a half, um, as your title as the, the global director of Formula One race promotion. You know, for all of us, uh, whether we work in the industry or not, one of the most eagerly anticipated things is seeing the next year's schedule, what races, what Grand Prix are on and, and what aren't. So you've got a very important job, a very demanding job. Tell us about how it all started and you got to where you are now. Thanks, Lee, and also to Tavo for the introduction. Well, my journey into Formula One all started by answering an ad in the paper, because back in the day, that's how, that's how you look for a job. Um, at least in the UK, I was a lawyer. I had obviously come from a very creative family background and um, was really interested in the business behind media and entertainment and worked for media and entertainment law firms but I was kind of restless, and I knew that it would be really interesting working for a company. So picked up the legal rag, and there was an advert in there for Formula One. I thought, well, oh, hey, that's interesting. You know, in the UK, it was, it's something that you grow up with. It's on TV every weekend. I'd kind of dipped in and out of it, knew something about it. Um, so went along. Bernie was in my interview, which was quite an experience in itself. Um, and one thing led to the other, and I, I got the job. So it was a really lean organization. We operated out of what was essentially Bernie's house, which created some really interesting, unique working environment. Um, but it was an incredibly busy environment. There was an unbelievable amount going on. I joined as a junior corporate M&A lawyer, so working across the business side with our previous private equity shareholders, CVC. Again, there was so much to learn. It was just so interesting. And my lovely colleague went on maternity leave, and it wasn't the organization that was really set up in a corporate function way to come in and have cover. So I... I had the opportunity to start working with Bernie on the race promotion side, which was a baptism of fire. <laughs> we were trying to IPO the business, or CVC were at the same time. I was a corporate lawyer. We're a really small team. We didn't have a big commercial team at all. Race promotion was Bernie's area. And so I literally sat and read through files for some of it, tried to decipher what Bernie was saying and just had to hit the ground running. Formula One is fast paced and it's relentless and it is quite sink or swim. Luckily, I managed to keep my head above water and here we are today. And, uh, you know, when Liberty came into the business and completed that deal in early 2017, we were just all so excited because we were ready for that growth. We were ready, ready, ready for the change. Ready for the change. Yeah. Bernie was incredible. 
businessman, founder, and what he created is, is just an unbelievable legacy. But we were starting to see a stagnation. And a lot of us in the business, I say a lot, there's not actually that many of us at that time, um, were just, just really inspired about where other sports were going, where other entertainment properties were going, and seeing, we knew what we had was so special. And it was just, right, how do we take it there? And Liberty have just been unbelievable investors in terms of the support to, to create that growth. By the way, we were chatting before we came here today. Um, it's not available, to my knowledge at the moment, it's not available in the States just yet, but it will be. And that is the, the docu-series about Bernie Eccleston and about really the establishment of the Formula One World Championship from 1950 onwards. And it's the, the, the Bernie doco, ostensibly, and it's called Lucky. And uh, I've got to see a few of the episodes. And it's really good, especially when you watch how it all started, how it evolved over the decades, and to what Chloe is going to address and has already spoken about today. It's, it's fascinating, the, the, the path and the roadmap. Um, and sometimes there was no map, <laughs> just where, where the path took Bernie and where he thought that it should go. So you're one of the unique people to live and work and prosper across both um, you know, ownership entities that had very different ideologies, philosophies, very different approaches as to how to um, conduct business and, and how to grow the sport. So how has that been? Have you had to do some juggling? Have you had to do some adaptation? Has it all been positives? Has it all been growth? Like, what, what, what's that like? It's been an incredible transformation. Um, what an experience. I think it feels like you're on a roller coaster. It's so Formula One that's just moving incredibly fast and you hold on for dear life and you learn as much as you can. I think curiosity is a huge advantage. It's something that I've always naturally had, so I feel quite privileged to do that, but it means you're constantly learning and where you go. Bernie's strategy was obviously very clear in terms of he had created this great sport, but he, he hadn't. He was at a stage where he wasn't really interested in growing it much further. We had some amazing partners that came in in that era um, on the sponsorship side: Rolex, Heineken. We obviously had an amazing broadcasting arrangement in the U.S. with NBC, with you, and with Austin, and we'd done new races. But it was really time to see how we could, you know, engage a new audience, engage a wider fan base. So. We didn't have a marketing department. We didn't have really a commercial division. Um, we had a, obviously a media rights business, but there was that, that's digital that's business. There was no social business. So literally kind of day zero in the Liberty era. And you've got to bear in mind, we're all still working out of essentially his house. So wow. we used to have to do a lot of our meetings, let's say in a lot of hotels around the area. <laughs> um, so we had Chase Carey came in to lead the business. Unbelievable um, guy, amazing, amazing man. And um, with Sean Bratches, who's ex at ESPN, Ross Braun, who'd been on the motorsport side, and it, Ross created a motorsport team so we could really create the product. What is the racing spectacle? Where are we going? What is this product that can really engage people? We've got these amazing cars, but how can we take that aspect to the next level as well as the commercial side of the business? So. It was day-to-day. -day. I mean, I feel like in the 14 years I've been there, I've essentially worked for a number of different 
companies because it's just changed automatically. We moved, we're much more of a modern sports organization. Chase, Sean, Ross put the foundations in. We had Stefano join us. Domenicali is our CEO in 2021. So now we're into the next era. And with his vision and energy, seeing how we can really move forward again with this growth. And we are still in that journey of building our, our organization and um, have welcomed lots of new colleagues, which is great and part of my experience as well as being able to learn from them and everything that they bring into the organization. But it, you know, like anything when you're going through fast growth, and I'm sure a number of people in this audience have experienced that, there's a lot to, um, sure. there's a lot to explain, there's a lot to educate on both sides. And I'm sure you've all seen Ted Lasso, but there are definitely moments <laughs> where you realize American and English are two different languages. <laughs> we are going to get to Drive to Survive soon. But first, and you know, maybe in your 14, not maybe in your 14 years, definitely in your 14 years, particularly given your role, your title, and we all had to get through it, right? Was, you know, Formula One, if you look at the championship this year, uh, 23 Grand Prix, an unprecedented 23 Grand Prix, 21 different countries and 15 different driver nationalities. And I know that you know, it is a truly global sport. I cover the Olympics. The world goes to the Olympics, one destination. Formula One goes to the world. And 2020 comes around and you have to tackle a traveling sport, a traveling family that is not allowed to travel. How did you get through it? Just to put it in some context, normal race, non-COVID, end of 2019, as an ecosystem, we have around 5,000 people working at a race to deliver a Formula One Grand Prix. And that's the traveling community. That's not the promoter on site who's also obviously delivering on the ground. So. We, we have a race in Shanghai, so we had started to learn about COVID very early on. And we were putting in place plans, I think it's probably the best way, although it was changing daily, um, as to how we would deal with China. But a big concern we had was, how far is this going to go? Is this going to impact, at the time it seemed so naive, all of our Asian races? Uh, I mean, I remember thinking, oh, this can't surely you know, stop the whole world because who had ever experienced that? And yeah, it did. So <laughs> it, it was when if we don't race, it's very simple. There, there isn't any Formula One and no one in the Formula One ecosystem has revenue then coming in. Or if they do, it's, it's a different revenue to what normally keeps them afloat. And as commercial rights holder, it's our responsibility to make sure that, you know, the ecosystem works, the revenue is coming in and that you know, a big part of our revenues go towards paying the teams with the prize fund. So it, it was in a really dangerous place. Um, we got together, we are, we are, we were then, we still are a very lean team. And so we were able to really just get to the basics of, right, what do we need to do to make sure this sport not only survives, but can get through this year and, you know, build on the phenomenal growth that we had put in place over 2017, 2018, 2019. We were fortunate that 
we had created an amazing digital team, an esports team, so they kept the engagement going with the fan base. And actually, what they created was, was incredible during that time. Um, in terms of my role, I never thought I'd be in a position where I was ringing up people saying, hey, do you want a Formula One race in six <laughs> weeks? And we can work out an operational plan. And I, I make light of it, but it was literally that um, alongside our sporting director at the time, Steve Nielsen, who's now with the FIA, and working through with each of our promoters, was it possible, was it viable, how did we get in safely, working up protocols, it was a huge team effort. Alongside that, the teams were doing incredible work with some of our, um, for example, Pat, our chief technical officer, around um, the breathing apparatus to the medical assistance, the technology that Formula One has that meant that we could harness that and put that unbelievable skill set of the Formula One teams while they weren't racing into actually medical support. Um, and it, so it was a phenomenal time. We achieved 17 races in the end. Um, wasn't quite the global calendar we're used to, but we still managed to race in Europe and also in the Middle East. And every European country obviously had different criteria, different border regulations, different COVID regulations. And so our traveling community, we went down to the bare bones of what it takes to operate a Formula One race behind closed doors. And so that number dropped from around 5,000 to, I think we just could do it around 2,000. Wow. And it wasn't just Formula One, our feeder series, F2 and F3, was critical. We couldn't lose those. Those are the champions of the future. So we had to make sure not only could we bring Formula One, but we needed to bring F2 and F3 alongside. And so, yeah, there were some very long, late <laughs> conversations, but I'm so proud of the team I got to work with because there's nothing like a crisis in Formula One and uh, we, are, we are very good at dealing with it. It brings everybody together. Roughly, what was your average work day? How many hours a day were you working? Well, I actually really enjoyed this because I got to be at home and not on a plane right. the whole time. So I have no issue with working any, you know, I guess I started out in, in law firm training when you're working on M&A deals. So I was trained pretty well before the Formula One, um, but just, yeah, very long days. But the advantage of not being on a plane and being at home for once as much as you were locked in was, uh, was a real pleasure. Timing is everything uh, in life, in business, in relationships and in sport, and the timing could not have been more sublime for the release of Drive to Survive, um, along with a global tragedy, the, the global pandemic. Um, it was one of the, uh, definitely one of the huge positives to come out of the period of the pandemic. Um, I'll give you an example, just a local example. I live in Connecticut. That's where NBC Sports Studios are based, and I live in Connecticut. And uh, I go and collect my mail at the local UPS store, and there's three guys who run it, and I know them really well. And uh, one of the guys, I walk in there one day and he's like, oh, when are you going to start doing Formula One again? I am so into Formula One right now. And I said, oh, that's great. I said, what do you think about the Grand Prix at the weekend? What Grand Prix? <laughs> he goes, I don't watch the Grand Prix. I just watch Drive to Survive. <laughs> but that is a portion of the audience. It has been, and I'll be very careful about my words here, it's been one of the greatest attributes to the growth of Formula One. So where do you stand on that? And I mean, I'm sure as a grateful recipient of it, but what is what does the business and what does the sport think of it? 
It's been such a blessing because it's really delivered on the strategy that when Liberty came in, we set out to do, which was how do we open up this sport? How do we create access? How do we get people to see the behind the scenes bit? For me personally, that's the bit I've always loved. What a place to work because whatever you see on the screen is exactly what it's like. And we've got the most amazing cast of characters naturally. And these hero drivers that are just here for the next couple of years have grown up with social media. They want to engage. They wanted to open up. So the timing of it, to your point, was, from, was incredible. We were very fortunate when COVID hit. We were Season 2 was just about to drop. So it meant that we had this great content that people could access and then get ready for. For sure, it's a key factor in... Um, in creating the energy and creating the hype and creating the buzz around the sport, that human interest. But actually, interestingly, we did some research around it and it's only kind of one in three people or new fans that have come to Formula One because of Drive to Survive. Really? Which I, I found really surprising because I thought it would be much higher. What it has really delivered on is creating, I think, a new fan base in areas that we wouldn't have naturally seen. So there's a higher increase in women, which is fantastic because it's such a great sport for women. Thanks, everyone. Mainly because of Daniel Ricciardo. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not going to comment, Lee. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, and so I think that's really interesting. For me, who runs essentially race promotion is a live events business. It's been unreal at conversion of that content and seeing it and actually then getting people to track. So for our promoters, it's also been incredibly interesting. And I think it's really helped set the scene for what we'd always wanted to achieve, which is more races in the US, more races in destination locations. Last year, we set out in 2017 to achieve 5 million fans attending our races by 2022. Okay, we had COVID as well. Last year, the number of people that attended our races was 5.86 million. Wow. I, I mean, we could not believe it. It was an ambitious goal at the time, but we were determined to do it. So working so hard with our promoters, opening up content, opening up the ability to come. And I think Drive to Survive is a key part of it, but interestingly, not the only part. Good. Well, that's good to hear. And, I, I, you know, you have a lot of people uh, on your side championing that cause as well. Or maybe not championing it, but just correcting people that, that solely uh, credit that for, for the growth. Tavo touched on an interesting point before, and, and that was um, Formula One in the United States. And, you know, there was, it was kind of the age-old discussion and topic, if you like, about how does Formula One get a foothold in the most complex and competitive sporting market in the world? And, and it really is. You can go to any European uh, country or just talk about Europe as a continent. You can go from where I'm from in the Southern Hemisphere. There is nowhere that has a sports television market or a sporting market as complex and competitive and as detailed as we do here in North America. It is so tough if you're coming from the outside. So that question always begged, how does Formula One get a foothold when Formula One has such a rich and long history uh, in the United States? Uh, Tavo mentioned 20 years at Watkins Glen. Um, right here in Austin became the 10th different venue to host. Now we're adding Miami, so make that 11. So what, you know, that question is no more because Formula One has taken off here. We'll get to Las Vegas in a moment. But what is it about 
Formula One and the US that has been so intriguing for the sport to, to captivate this market? Well, it feels like, you know, the holy grail, I think, to a certain extent. We're a global sport, as you put it. US is a complex sport, sophisticated, hugely sophisticated market. But equally, it is the world's largest sports and entertainment market. So how can we as a global sport not have a really strong traction here? So there was a lot of concern from our avid fan base, I think, historically. Oh, you know, Liberty going to come in and Americanize the sport. And I think internally we all felt, well, A, yes. I mean, why would we not want to do that? But the integrity of the sport is actually what is so interesting about it. It's unique. It's different to what other sports there are in the U.S. or come to the U.S. already. So why wouldn't an American fan base engage and enjoy? And I think it's just as simple, like, when you watch it on TV, if you come to one of our events, it is so immersive, it's so live, that sound is like nothing you've ever experienced. And it really engages with all ages and all, all things. And the ability then to also harness the data, the tech, the innovation that's behind Formula One, that's so unique. And it also adds to the entertainment factor as well. And the US, we felt, was a market that was really ready for it and we could really bring something that was unique and exciting for everyone. This weekend um, is the 12 Hours of Sebring. Uh, it's the second round of the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. I'm heading back to the East Coast to commentate that this weekend. And one of the drivers in the series is a very quiet but hugely successful American businessman, George Kurtz. And George, you may have never even heard of George. George is the man behind CrowdStrike. You see CrowdStrike on the Mercedes-AMG uh, Formula One cars. You see them on Lewis's helmet, on George's helmet. They're everywhere. CrowdStrike is one of a massively growing number of American companies that want in. They want all in on Formula One. That's got to be very um, rewarding for you, for the sport. Um, but what do you make of, of that uptick in commercial and corporate involvement? I mean, Walmart is on the cars now. I mean, there's, there's a growing number of brands that we see. Wow, wow, wow. Like, especially here when we, mm. when we watch it in, in, in North America. It's fantastic because from our side, it was a clear part of our strategy, not just us and the teams, but in engaging an American audience, it's obviously important we want to engage American business. That's how the sport will be successful. That's how it will maintain growth. I think I read some data the other day where I think the number of American brands or businesses, the corporates that are now involved in F1 has doubled since the early kind of, you know, 2010s. And you can see that across the teams um, with our own brands on the Formula One side. We have amazing partners such as AWS, Workday, Salesforce, and hopefully some more coming in soon, which will be announced. Um, Austin was a real part of creating that buzz because it, it was the foundation for a race. And then obviously Miami was a, it was a huge target for us. And I think, again, the locality, what that brings, the hype, the American audience around it, and Netflix, frankly, as well. We mm -hmm. come back to that. But it, you know, we're a commercial business. We've got a lot of ambition around that. We need to drive that forward. So the more business that we can do, and we are very much open for business, the better. Um, we have to be somewhat parochial while we're sitting here in Austin mm -hmm. because we, as American Formula One fans, were looking for that home, that new home, 
And so now we've ticked over a decade. Mm. How has that been dealing with Circuit of the Americas and Bobby Epstein and, and the whole, you know, Austin Formula One event? We'll get to Miami and Vegas in a moment, but talk about dealing with the promoter there and dealing with the city of Austin, et cetera. Well, they've been the most fantastic partner. Um, the team at COTA, Bobby, you know, what Tavo initiated, they really took forward and have built with us all over the last 10 years. Um, the economic impact that Formula One can bring, you know, about 50% of fans that attend a Formula One race are international. That was obviously a key objective for the city of Austin and the state of Texas and how we deliver on that. So you're looking at, I think Bobby and I were talking last week and he was telling me that there's around 400 million people that they can track data-wise that know about Austin because of Formula One. And I think that is clearly the value that we bring to a city and a host. It is that visibility on our TV audience, which is you know cumulative of around 2 billion. Um, but what they have achieved and how they have created and developed and evolved the event, you know, it's our only permanent circuit in the US. So it really is a home of Formula One. You know, if you want to go and experience Formula One outside of the event weekend, go and have a track day. Cota is the most phenomenal circuit. I hope most of you have been there. If not, there's no excuse. You're here this week. Get out there. But the festival atmosphere they create, the live music that they put on side with, you know, global artists, it really is phenomenal. There's community elements they do with our F1 in Schools program, with Make-A-Wish Foundation, charity initiatives. So the team there are brilliant. And what we like to do on the promoter side is just get a bit competitive with our promoters, right? How are we going to increase the experience? How are we going to get better? What are you doing? And Coaster team are a big part of that and pushing the boundaries. Just another reminder that we are going to save some time for you, about 15 minutes, in fact, for some Q&A. So thanks to you. We see some questions here in front of us. So thank you very much for doing that. If you want to ask Chloe or Tavo uh, some questions, we're going to save plenty of time for you. And I've been going off script. I need to get through this, okay? <laughs> I need to get through That's this. Fine. Actually, before we move on, yeah. tell us about Miami. Tell us about Vegas. Well, Miami, what a dream. We've been trying to see how we could create a race there since 2017. It was one of the first things with um, Liberty coming in that we were able to target. What we partnered quite early on with the fantastic team at Dolphin, Steve Ross related group behind that to really look at where we could bring a race. We just saw it as a key location in the US to do business. We have a huge um, South American, Latin American following. So for us, Thank you. I am half, well, my father is half Colombian, so I feel very strongly around that. Um, so it was a great location for us to hit a number of objectives. We tried very hard to see if we could bring uh, a race downtown. It is not easy to shut a city down. So we totally understand why Miami didn't go for that. The kind folks at Miami Gardens and Hard Rock Stadium, Tom Garfinkel, Steve Ross, Tyler Epp, who's now running that race. Um, fantastic partners and we built it up with them and again what a unique second race opportunity we have nothing else like that on our calendar racing around hard rock stadium is phenomenal and last year the success of the first event sellout crowd i think there was around 330,000 there Austin still wins the crown for the most people at a Formula One event, 440,000 440, across the event last year. Unbelievable. Miami blew us away. Did it yeah. blow you away? Absolutely. It was everything that we felt it could be and more. And, and again, what they, some of their plans for this year is building on it. One of the things we're going to do is move the paddock area 
which is the area where the drivers work and operate, into the field area of Hard Rock Stadium. And Tyler and his team have been working hard on that. But it gives fans a really new experience because actually it means that there's a ticket opportunity, experience opportunity, where you can go up into the top level of the stadium and actually view the paddock in a way that's not normally available for general admission holders, general ticket holders. So that is part of how we open up access to the sport at all, at all price points, at all levels as well. So they're building out some really interesting ideas. So for the first time ever, we are going to get spoilt this year and have three Formula One Grand Prix in America. Three! Tell us about Vegas. What can we expect? Wow. I mean, Las Vegas, that really was our pinnacle, our dream. I remember, you know, it's something that we'd started working on with Bernie. You know, there was a race, the infamous Caesars car park, yes. 1981, I think. Um, so we haven't been there a long time, and it's time to create our own home in Las Vegas. We had really ambitious plans. We knew if we were going to race in Vegas, we wanted to race down the strip. So... COVID, again, was very kind to us because it meant Las Vegas was looking for additional entertainment content, particularly ones that would be bringing in um, international fans and re-energizing re what they were doing. They had a very distinctive sports strategy. So we partnered very early on with Steve Hill at Las Vegas Convention Authority, who is an amazing partner with us, working then to introduce us to each of the casinos who again have become founding partners of the race incredible um opportunity for both of us to really build on those bigger strategic partnerships it's going to be phenomenal it's the first race that we and liberty jointly are self-promoting so we have an amazing team in vegas um, led by Rene Wilm and also my colleague Emily Prazer on the chief commercial side, so great on the diversity front. But the wider um, race is going to be absolutely phenomenal. All right. We love to sit around and reflect on great years gone by, but we're living in this thrilling moment right now and we have to look to the future. It has been very noticeable that there is a younger demographic that is totally engaged by Formula One. True or false? True. You like that? It's brilliant. I mean, everyone wants to engage that younger audience, right? Because they're the future. So if you don't, how are you going to survive? And not only that, you don't want to engage them for future growth. You want to engage them because you know they're really going to love it. And it's so exciting. But also, there's, there's a whole world of inspiration that they can get from it, not just entertainment, in terms of how to, you know, create your goals in life. There's engineering skills that you can possibly pick up. I just think Formula One is so broad on that level and what it can give back to a younger fan. Well, I think fan. the diversity too speaks volumes, doesn't it? Well, I said before, 15 different driver nationalities. You can talk about being a global sport and you might have three different nationalities, but it truly is a global sport. Um, is it a balancing act? Um, exciting that younger demographic while keeping maybe the older demographic engaged in the sport that have been for a long time? Is that a difficult balancing act? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We, what we really don't want to do is alienate our amazing core fan base. They've been with us for a very long time. And there are still some markets where it's predominantly that motorsport purist, that avid fan. I think it's around 80% in Germany and in, in the UK, for example. So it's a balancing act and between us and the teams and the drivers and the marketing teams and obviously various digital teams that sit behind it. How do we make sure that we can 
create relevant touch points for each of those and, and what is that audience so there's a lot of work going on right now to do that and I think it's also part of how we engage across all of our platforms so on the media side on the TV side we've made the sport more accessible we've explained it I think for, for a long time and I know when I first started in it it felt quite difficult to understand it's complex there are rules and regulations and some of the graphics that we're doing are amazing you'll know that from the yeah. tv side yeah. you know the cameras and the halo and how that all fits together and then it's just the intense drama of it so it's the media side the media product the digital side the social media how do we really engage what content is going to be fun for everyone to enjoy and just keep 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 people coming back for more do you know one of the key performance indicators that I'm fascinated by is merchandise? Yes. And I'm not alienating any Ferrari fans in the room or any Red Bull fans in the room or any... Actually, Williams has changed somewhat. Yeah. But just something as simple as going into a store or catching a train or wherever you might be in a gas station, whatever it might be. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I certainly have over the past few years and maybe Drive to Survive is responsible for that. I'm not sure. But I have seen an inordinate number of younger people wearing McLaren papaya. And it could be sweaters, it could be shirts, it could be caps. I think Lando Norris has yeah. contributed immensely to that. But think about that. I mean, it's not unusual to see people wearing English Premier League or, yeah. or European football jerseys in this country, NFL uh, stuff or basketball stuff or collegiate stuff. But to see, especially in this country, to see the proliferation of Formula One merchandise, I, that excites me. It's, you're completely right. I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, if we were in Austin for the race, yeah, you saw people buying some at the track, but you didn't see people walking down the street. And just that shift from the end of 2020, I remember when we were first coming to Vegas to, you know, meet with all the partners there to try and put this race together, to then a year on, and you genuinely, it's amazing seeing people in airports walking down the streets. I, I just think it's unbelievable. And also our merchandise range has got a lot better, though. I, will. <laughs> I love it. All right. Um, let's talk about um, what, what positive legacy that the Austin race has left for the others to follow. And the others, I speak specifically about Miami and Vegas. What have you loved? What have you noticed? What do you grip onto that you want Miami and Vegas to pay attention to? And I know it's different because they're two temporary circuits versus a permanent circuit. But talk about what legacy Austin has left for the others to follow. I think that's a great question because Austin has created its own persona. Um, I think its ability to engage and really deliver on what we were trying to set out to achieve of, you know, a Super Bowl type experience that hadn't existed in the F1 world in terms of what is the entertainment offering at the track and also downtown. We want to engage the community as a whole, but we also want to make sure that everyone coming into town just has the best weekend ever. I mean, it's Formula One, it should be fun, right? There's a lot of business that gets done, but it is about having fun. So I think it's that unbelievable combination of being able to tie that all together and energize year on year that 
I know Miami started really strong and they've got the most amazing plans and I think they will continue to do that for sure. And then they, both Miami and Austin have set the bar so high and we're the promoter in Vegas and we need to just take it to the next level again. Um, but there is such an amazing legacy, I think, in terms of, yeah, the economic impact that comes in. I know, I think from last year's report that it's around 70 million tax dollars that are spent and go into the economy around that. And that's just in one year. So if you think we've been here for 10 years, that's such a positive legacy. Very much so. All right, grab a drink of water. We've got a video to play for you now. Take a quick break, Chloe. Watch this video. And we would be remiss to say that there's a Grand Prix going on this weekend. Don't forget to watch. All right, rapid-fire questions so we save some time for Q&A time. It has gone well beyond uh, 20 cars driving on the track and maybe even going beyond just the sport. It's an entertainment spectacle. Um, all the A-list celebs want to be seen there. Has that surprised you? Not at all. It's just <laughs> grown what was already there. All right, 23 races around the world. Could we see 24, 25? Quality, not quantity. <laughs> <laughs> um, it has long been argued and spoken about that the cornerstone races, particularly Silverstone, but Monaco, Monza, races like that, Spa, etc., they will always be on the Formula One calendar. True? False. Do they deserve to be there? Do they have a right to be there? Or they have to always operate at a certain level to maintain their position on the schedule and the calendar? We want to create the best calendar in the world that really delivers globally so you've got to earn your place at the moment they are I would just say to any of those promoters that are watching but they are all needing to evolve and build on it and they're all 100% behind that all right we're going to forego a video because I want to hear your words instead sustainability in the sport is huge it's massively important there's not a category of racing that doesn't feel um, the burden um, of responsibility to do something. At the end of the day, we're going racing motor cars, right? But we need to do something uh, because of the, the, the carbon footprint that we all create, travelling to the races, what the races do. Where is Formula One at from a sustainability perspective and where are you going? It's, at, it's so important to us. It's a key part of our strategy for the future. If you're not sustainable, we just won't exist. It's as simple as that. So net carbon zero by 2030, we're on a fast mission to get there. Um, we are looking at it in terms of there's a hell of a lot of, sorry, not sure I'm going to say that, development work going on. We say heck here. Heck. There's heck. a heck of a lot of work going on in terms of sustainable fuels with our partner Aramco, looking at where that can be and how that will be introduced by 2026 as part of the regulations for the car then. Um, we've already got, obviously, these incredible cars that are incredibly efficient, and part of that technology is, is powering some of the change in the wider world. Um, from the calendar perspective, yes, we do. We're a global sport. We travel a lot. We are one of my key responsibilities is looking at how we can regionalize our calendar so that we are the most travel efficient as possible. Um, one of the things in COVID is that we started remote operations on the broadcast side. That was actually a two or three year plan that we then rolled out in what, 
eight weeks <laughs> to be able to operate in COVID, but it's a big part of that sustainability. And we work with each of our promoters to really figure out how do we create more public transportation options? What are, where's food waste going? What are the community impacts? You know, one of the things that Austin did really well last year was Sebastian Vettel as part of his legacy into the sport was tree planting, how that then creates a better atmosphere, a better, world for everyone so sustainability is just front and center of every deal we do every day that we operate and i know that the dutch grand prix yeah. being one of the newer or coming yeah. back the dutch grand prix was one of the at the forefront of that with with their, some of their initiatives hey tavo come on back up uh, in case there's any austin specific questions folks round of applause for <laughs> tavo hellman again come on up mate hey guys. okay We've got about 10 minutes for these questions. Let's kick off straight away. And thank you all for those of you who posted your questions. Uh, which future trends interest you the most in terms of F1 broadcast and fan engagement? Go for it. That's a great question. I think it's just basically Formula One, we like to push boundaries. So what can we do? What is the latest tech? What's the innovation? I think if you look at what the NBA have just released in terms of being able to use the avatar and going straight into it, what could you do with Formula One? How does that fit in with our gaming product? So that's quite a broad answer, but I think there's so many trends that we've got to make sure that we pinpoint the ones that are right for Formula One. Next question, with the lack of women slash minority drivers in Formula One, uh, aside from F1 Academy and the now defunct W Series, what can be done to bring a woman into an F1 seat? Is it sim racing? That's definitely one part of it. Um, it's one of the reasons why we launched F1 Academy to see, you know, we've got to be investing into the future. It's perfectly possible. We're so proud to have Susie Wolf leaving, leading that, who obviously was an F1 driver 2014 with Williams. Um, she's got some unbelievable ideas of how we can really build that, but that series will start this year, and then next year we're looking to see how we can build it out further. But there is so much to do, and it's about equality of opportunity and making sure that talent pipeline, as they come up through the motorsport world, through the karting world, where they're actually getting the ability to test and drive and have the opportunity so they can then get picked up by the teams. And if you know this, um, excuse me for repeating it, if you don't, you should be aware of the fact that the three-time W Series champion, Jamie Chadwick, who is part of the Williams Formula One Driver Academy, Jamie's here now. Jamie's racing in uh, what was formerly known as Indy Lights, it's now known as Indy Next. Uh, she had a little bit of a rough weekend at St. Petersburg at the opening weekend of the IndyCar Series, but Jamie is, even though the W Series is no more, Williams are fully invested in Jamie. Uh, I'm not sure from the Formula One side, I'm sure you fully endorse it, but Jamie is over here keeping her racing uh, going and growing and learning more that she, you know, her end goal, there's no doubt that she wants to be in Formula One. Uh, due to the success of Drive to Survive, uh, is my concern, my concern is about uh, prices rising so much that the sport will only be available to the richest of fans. Is this valid? No, it's, it's a key priority for us that we make sure we have entry level availability tickets to come to a race. It's something that we work with all promoters on. Um, we need to have a broad section of audience. This is a sport for, for everyone. One of my favorite quotes is from my Monaco promoter, who you wouldn't necessarily expect this from, but they say Monaco races for backpackers to billionaires because there literally is an entry point for everyone. 
one of the things we need to do more of as a sport is making sure we talk about that more. So anyone, whatever budget you have, you're able, if you want to come, you're very welcome and we will find a way to make sure you have a great experience. Do you know what we used to say every year at Monaco? Probably the best seat in the house was near Raskas, up on the hill, sitting exactly. on the grass. It's the free seats. It's the free seats. Yeah. Um, Tavo, why don't you take this one? With new markets online in the US, uh, what can the city, not the track, do to help ensure that F1 remains in Austin beyond 2026? Well, look, I mean, the, the thing about Austin, and Chloe was there when, when we were putting the deal together. I'd agreed to it with Bernie in 2007, but Austin is unique, and we knew that we needed to do a unique thing. So really, before it was announced to the public in 2010, uh, you know, everything was already in place. There was a contract with F1. There was an agreement with the government. The government agreed to support it in a way with a mechanism that everyone's familiar with, the major events reimbursement program. Um, the track was already laid out. The track was already named. No one knew all that stuff until 2010, but it was already done. So there was a thought process here that this was the linchpin that needed to happen. Now, truth be known, and a lot of people here in Austin know, that it was actually going to be built about five miles away from where it is. I got uh, enticed to move it to where it's built now, and it's turned out to be a beautiful location. And, of course, I'm going to be biased, and I think it's the best racetrack in the world. Um, but uh, I think that, that without that linchpin, Lee, you don't have anything to build on. And Chloe has said it uh, time and time again. It's, it set the bar really high for Stephen and the guys in Miami. They're doing a great job, and they're going to do an even better job in May. And the little bit uh, that we've all seen about Vegas, and I walked the track for the first time seven years ago, and to see what they're doing now is just, it's going to blow everybody away. Chloe, you may or may not be able to answer this, but let's give it a crack. Is F1 looking into bringing the F1 TV experience into the metaverse? The applications could be plentiful from watch parties all the way to F1 fantasy experience. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a whole team of people looking at this now in terms of how we can create the best experience, what it could be. So watch this space. Um, what role does the uh, has digital transformation played in building the F1 fan base? Oh, absolutely huge. critical, huge. Yeah. Day one, day zero, Liberty coming in, digital team. We had no digital business essentially um, prior to 2017 or it was very, very embryonic. So it's absolutely huge. All right, we're, we're ripping through them. Thanks so much for your questions. Could you talk about the logistics of moving the entire Grand Prix travel team? You mentioned this before with 5,000 people from country to country and the plans around making this more sustainable. You touched on this a little bit before. Yeah, it's, it's looking about how we can bring more things into remote um, operations where they don't need to travel from every race, and that's from us, from our TV production business. Um, in terms of what we need to bring to a, a location, how can we work better with our promoters and sourcing elements in that location? So it, it's ongoing, the logistics at the moment, there's, there's an unbelievable amount of freight. The key freight that obviously will continue that need to go is the cars, the teams, to make sure that we can have a race. There's a question here, I'm gonna jump one then come back to the other one. There's a question here, the Halo truly uh, saved Romain Grosjean uh, the other year, there was a Bahrain in his crash. Are there any other safety features you think should be implemented? Look, I can tell you from Formula One to IndyCar to NASCAR uh, to sports cars, the FIA and each of the governing bodies in, in, in the United States, in Australia, in England, wherever, it doesn't matter, Southeast Asia, 
everybody is is rowing the boat in the same direction. We've seen it in in IndyCar so many times, even just two weekends ago with the aero screen. The halo saved Fernando Alonso um, in, in Melbourne. Uh, no, pardon me, he didn't have the halo back then, but it would have anyway. Um, it, there, there have been numerous examples, both in Formula 1 and in IndyCar, where that, and even in F2 and F3 and in, and in Indy Lights, it has worked so well. And the FIA is always looking, and, the, and the, the independent governing bodies are always looking at making these cars safer, and you know we don't want to see another critical injury. Uh, we we want to make it as safe as possible. Uh, next question: What is F1's approach to creating an immersive on-ground uh, brand experience in the U.S. versus Europe, Asia, and the Middle East? Yeah, it's a great question. It's part of the most fun, creative parts of my job, working with our promoters, looking at how we can really do that. Because what's relevant in the U.S. isn't necessarily relevant in Asia and the Middle East, so we localize. We've got to localize so we know that the person going to that event has the best immersive on-ground brand experience and what can we do year on year around that. What does F1 consider the potential for XR or augmented reality graphics to complement its live broadcasts to what are already fantastic graphics? Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the current graphics. Look, we're we're at the forefront of technology as a sport, so we've got to develop it. There's a lot of work going on behind the scenes in terms of does how do we create that? How does it make sure that it doesn't impact the sporting integrity that needs to come across as part of the broadcast? So it's, it's a new technology that we need to figure out how to put in in the right way. I mean, from a broadcasting perspective, Lee, interested in your thoughts on that too. Yeah, I think um, I think it's eyes wide open, and it's and it's open to everything and anything. We are almost out of time, but the three of us could answer this unanimously. Ready? See that final question? How is F1 dealing with the new wave of electric cars, and what is the next step on this journey? No, I would say <laughs> Formula E. <laughs> Uh, yes. Sustainable Formula. fuels. Sustainable, <laughs> Sustainable, renewable energy, renewable fuels, etc. Um, we are literally seconds away from our session finishing. Uh, please thank Chloe. Please thank Tavo. Um, it's, an exciting, it's an exciting journey to be on, and thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll stick around if you've got any more questions. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, everyone. It was great to meet you all.